What's up, guys? Coach Steve here. Welcome back to another episode of the Rise Method podcast. In today's, today's episode, I'm joined with co-host, Coach Nick. Nick, how are we doing? Good, thanks. How are you, Coach Steve? I'm well. I'm well. I missed you last week. I hope you are feeling better. Um, but how's your day been? Sad emoji. Sad no, emoji I've, had a, I've had a good day. No, good day. Thank you very much. Um, I've done some RDLs, so they're quite good. Everything's yeah. good. Yeah, living the Hamstring dream. Hamstring games. Hamstring mm-hmm. games. Uh, so that's you stole my first question, Nick, uh, which is how's your training? So you did some RDLs today. today. Yeah, that's why um, I told you that because I preempted the <laughs> how's your training because you, you're obsessed with my training. <laughs> I am. I am. No, I'm, I'm just, I'm just obsessed, obsessed with it. Nick, yeah. I'm just obsessed with training in general. I love watching people exercise. I love watching people move. Um, so hamstrings. Mm-hmm. Uh, RDLs, training the hamstrings yep. in a lengthened position with the legs straight. Mm-hmm. What other hamstring mm-hmm. work do you try to aim for? Uh, I do um, the classic hamstring curls. Um, mm-hmm. I do seated and um, up, up, hang on, seated is upright and lying down. So I do that. Mm-hmm. Um, what else do I do? Um, all sorts of deadlift varieties. Um, I do hyperextensions. Um, yeah. What else? Um, Nordics. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I'm really getting into the hamstrings because I need I need big bulging hamstrings. Yeah. Yeah. No, I hear you. I hear you. Mm. Uh, so tell me, what kind of um, volume are you doing with your hamstrings? Um, you know, is it those those exercises? Let's say what was it, like five or six exercises and what two three sets each. So like what 10, 15 sets in volume or yeah yeah about at? that and um. Yeah, at the moment, say like the rep, the rep scheme is um, that sort of ten to twelve reps I'm doing, so mm-hmm. um, that kind of mid range reps. Mm-hmm. But then um, occasionally I get a treato and I get to do like an eight rep. That's yep. my treato. That's a treato. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm doing uh, I'm doing barbell squats again. That's really good because I got I got really strong at them. Mm-hmm. I reckon. Um, what else? I yeah, I have. I think I said last time I haven't been. I've been training my shoulders, but not maybe as much, which is so cool because my shoulders. Uh, they, I've got gains on my shoulders, so um, for some reason they're a body part that has grown quite well. So I don't have to worry as much about them, which is bizarre. I mean, apart from all the movements that do use your shoulders anyway, mm-hmm. but I'm talking bodybuilding. Yeah. 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 yeah, the old caps and the shoulders. Uh, but before we uh, go down a rabbit hole of other training, uh, let's go back to hamstrings. Now, some mm-hmm. folks out there, when they go to train their hamstrings, have a hard time targeting the hamstrings. They might feel a lot of, let's say, uh, like low back, like the low back pump. For example, you do an RDL. Mm-hmm. And I experienced mm-hmm. this personally when I was early in my lifting journey. I'd do something like an RDL and I w- wouldn't feel it in my hamstrings at all like maybe a little bit of glutes um but a lot of low back so when i was doing things mm. like a um an rdl or a straight leg deadlift stiff leg deadlift whatever you know very similar hinge movement um or even like a back extension and you call it like a hyper extension all i feel is like mm. that lower back pump mm. have you experienced something like that before like do you do you, do you resonate yes. with that yeah oh now- yeah when i first first started training um actually probably wasn't when i first started training because when i first started training i probably wasn't doing enough to feel anything. So it was maybe in about my third year of training mm-hmm. and it was actually at Juan Turner gym, which you know, 
Yeah. That yeah. gym. And yeah. I was training there and I, I kept feeling it in my back all mm-hmm. the time. So I just um because I didn't have as much education as as like I didn't have people like us. So mm-hmm. I just avoided them. <laughs> yeah. I was like, oh well, they're not for me. Yeah. Doesn't yeah. matter. But um, it's sort of like the barbell row, even though we're talking about hamstrings, but it's sort of like that thing of until you know how it's meant to feel um, and sort of like until you're strong enough to do it, you won't be able to do it properly unless, you, you know, you really regress the movement and it takes a while. But once you actually realise what it's meant to feel like, it's a whole different ball game. Mm, yeah, no, mm. absolutely. And it's taken me a good uh, probably decade of training to really feel the difference. Um, and I want to preface mm. this by saying that, feeling your lower back while you're exercising isn't a bad thing, right? You know, it's a muscle mm. like anything else. Um, you know, there's yep. quite a lot of muscle in that area to help stabilize your body. And for like strength sports, you know, we're talking about how much can you deadlift, how much can you clean and jerk, how much could you lift, you need a strong lower back. So some folks prioritize that to strengthen the lower back. However, in bodybuilding, it becomes problematic because if we want to target the hamstrings and you're feeling it in your low back or the low back is the limiting factor in your hamstring development, that's a problem in your progression. So yeah, definitely. Nick. Yeah, and I remember in my first show, I was the, one of the only chicks on stage with like jacked erectors, and mm. the rest of me had nothing. I didn't have yeah. anything, but I had these two like thumping big erectors on the back because of my deadlifting and everything. So, yeah. um, I can relate to that. My lower yeah. back just became the strongest out of everything first up. Mm-hmm. Mm. And. Um, you're not alone because I think a lot of folks out there are like that and mm. they would avoid those movements where they go, oh, I don't like the lower back pump. I feel, you know, it's on the verge of painful mm. pump you feel in your low back. So I avoid things like deadlifts, deadlift varieties, RDLs, um, back extensions, and even to an extent, some uh, leg curl variations. You know, you said seated and then laying on your stomach or even laying on your back, depending mm. on what machine you have. So Nick, with your multiple decades of training experience, if you were to coach somebody through how they could limit their lower back and then feel it more in their like hamstring, um, do you have any like gems or tips or uh, any, any, any tricks someone could try to feel it again in their hamstrings? It's a hard one because you can, I, I reckon people tell it to me still. So I still hear it all the time if I'm doing, it's like, um, put your your um hips back but then what does that really mean so like i think you've said it before it's it's like um present your your bum to the world like <laughs> basically like put your it's it's like think that you're like a, a little doggy with your your bum up and press it against the wall behind you yeah <laughs> like yeah. honestly yeah. if someone had told me that ages ago because otherwise it's very very tempting to um, I have to actually, I'm not, hang on, I have to, I can't, I'm too tired to not. So, it's, yeah, it's tempting to um, kind of, I'm actually just standing up for anyone. That's, <laughs> I was going to say, if you're not watching this, uh, yeah, Nick is now standing <laughs> maybe up. Maybe this me. is our screen. <laughs> yeah, it's it's tempting to sort of um, maybe bend your legs a little bit and not stick your butt out as much as, as you should. So, you know, you know what is going around at the moment that's really good is that um, cute little, sausage video um nobody sausage where um that you have to stick your butt out like that instead of curved over so butt out and arched and then you can kind of um, move from there so yeah, okay. it's like yeah yeah look nick i used to be in with it and knew what it was but then it changed and now i have no idea what it is anymore so um 
the sausage video. There you go. No, trust me. Trust me. Um, I'll, I'll send you the link to the sausage video so then you can um, put it in the notes of this podcast or something. Yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll do yeah. that, definitely. Mm. Um, yeah, like I think especially over the last, let's say, two, maybe maybe closer to three years of my training experience, we're really honed in on the, the hamstrings. Um, you know, I would feel it in my low back, maybe feel it in my glute, really struggle feeling my hamstring. Um, or never really got that uh, pump sensation in my hamstring, you know, that, that feeling. Mm -hmm. And that can be really uncomfortable later when you get the hamstring cramp, maybe when you go into bed or getting off the couch. Yeah, that's, that's not fun. That's, um, yeah, not great. Mm. Um, but I think the first one you said was like during a hip hinge, well, firstly, even rewind, like you want to know what a hip, in, hip hinge is. So if I'm saying that word hip hinge and you're looking like listening to this, you're like, Steve, what the, what the hell are you talking about? A hip hinge is where your knee stays relatively straight, you know, the bench or whatever, um, but you're moving just through the hip joints. So not through the knees, not through the low back, just through the hips. And to achieve the hip hinge, you need to shift your uh, center of gravity slightly. So what happens is your hips actually move back. And that's where that cue comes in of like, put, put your hips back. Because if you're watching it from the side, um, your your feet are in the middle of your body, but then your belly button is still in the middle of your body, but then your hips are on one side of your body and your head's on the other side of, of your, your feet, right? Kind of like that, you know, that red um, tipping bird in the in the water? Do you, do you know what I'm talking mm -hmm. about? Yeah, yeah. My, my, yeah. my grandparents used to have one of those, you know, little, little tippy bird thing, little red tippy bird. And it had that yes. little ca counterbalance on, on its butt. So it wasn't able to bend just at the hips because that would just put the body at a, at a right angle and it'll tip over. It had a little counterbalance on its butt. So what happens is when we do a hip hinge, our hips need to shift backwards to create that counterbalance. So that's the first thing you need to understand what a hip hinge is to feel your hamstrings. Number two, like you said, Nick, was you know you kind of want to present yourself to the world. And what that is implying is that we're trying to get an what's called an anterior pelvic tilt. So your uh, pelvis is tilting forward or almost sausage. like you're sausage yeah sure yeah. um or like you're trying to keep that arch in your low back so really trying to arch your low back stick your butt out um and then complete that hip hinge and what you'll find is um uh, for me particularly i was able to do a hip hinge but when i was doing like an rdl straight leg deadlift stiff leg deadlift i was obsessed with going all the way down to the floor and i had the mm. flexibility for that where i'll go all the way down to the floor but what would happen is as I go through that range of motion, I would reach my limit range of motion of my hips. And then I would, my body would find the next joint, which is my low back to get more range of motion so that I can get away down to the floor. Then what happened was my low back was just going, Hey, Steve, I'm strong. I can do this movement. Who needs the hamstrings? So what I needed to do was to really feel the stretch in my hamstrings. And what I did mm. was one, I kept my legs straight. So often the cue is to keep a slight bend in your knee, which is a powerful cue to be strong. But if you want to make yourself weak so that you can target the hamstrings, keep that leg straight, like the, the knee straight. Um, arch the lower back, really strong arch, almost like it's like that cramping sensation in your low back, trying to arch, stick your butt out. And then as you go through that hip hinge, try to let the weight move forward past your toes. So if you're holding a dumbbell or a barbell, instead of lowering the weight you know, uh, against your thighs, against your leg, which is how you be strong in a deadlift, you do the opposite where you let the weight actually shift kind of over your midfoot, over your toes, and you'll find a really aggressive hamstring stretch. Come on. Then 
you need less load. So the low back doesn't want to take over. You feel in the hamstring and then the hamstrings get this crazy stretch and crazy pump. So if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, I just don't feel it in my hamstrings, give that a try. If you don't feel it yep. in things like the um, back extension, same idea. Try to arch your back out, uh, arch your low back, stick your butt out and complete the, ha- the, the hip hinge movement on the back extension. And you might find that you can't go down as low, which is fine, but you get a crazy hamstring stretch. And that's the same with the seated um, and even the prone position. If you arch your low back, focus on getting that stretch, you'll feel it in the hamstrings and you'll have a a really great time, (laughs) is all I'd say. Yes. Um, If you've got a hip belt squat, that's another way to set one up as well Mm -hmm. because that that is really good because you can almost almost sort of – lean back a little bit into it so so you really have to keep those legs straight yeah um as well so that that's a good one yeah Yeah. and it's great double whammy Mm. because one you know that stretch position um especially in the lengthened position um under load is really great for building muscle uh and then two if you are wanting to increase your range of motion there's no point just doing you know hamstring stretches you might as well do a hamstring stretch under load so if you want to touch your toes why not do movements like, you know, RDL, straight leg deadlift, uh, back extension. Uh, you mentioned the hip belt version of a of an RDL. So stretch that hamstring, make the hamstring grow. You get a crazy hamstring pump and then you get these juicy Christmas hams on your legs, which is always, mm. always fun, isn't it? Yeah, I reckon. I reckon that they're fantastic. Hamstrings <laughs> are the new bods. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, Nick. I want to pivot the conversation from hamstrings into diets. Okay. okay. So we had a question on the forum, which I thought was really interesting and it might spark a bigger conversation. So I'll read the cliff notes of it. And the crux of it was about energy deficits and energy deficit diets and if they work. And if we look at the semantics of it, an energy deficit diet means that we are in a position where we are consuming fewer calories than we expend which is the goal of any diet. So do energy deficit diets work really means do energy deficits work or does dieting work, right? Mm. So the question was, I've been thinking about this a long time and figured out it's time to ask, does being in a calorie deficit work for everybody? Obviously it should, calories in versus calories out. The reason I ask, every time I go into a deficit, I don't lose weight. The only time I do is if I'm on higher calories, 1800 to 2100-ish. I have a pretty good muscle density and consider myself fairly toned except for the layer of soft stuff that covers everything. When I try lesser calories to lose this, literally nothing happens. Like nothing, lol. Any thoughts would be appreciated. Okay, so Nick, a little bit to unpack here, but do you want to take the first stab? What would you say to this individual who's unsure if energy deficit is is working for them? Okay, so... I would just firstly ask a question of um, have you ever lost weight? Like um, that's a really, like I'm not trying to be silly with the question. Um, what have you done previously that has worked for you in losing weight? Because um, I'd like to hear that. I'd like to know because it, there's no point, I suppose, in going into what you would consider to be an energy deficit if it's not working for you but then staying where you are is working or it isn't working. So what is working or has it never worked? 
mm-hmm. has it never worked and therefore we can never be we can't really be sure that that is an energy deficit for you but just say that all your ducks are lined up and it is in fact an energy deficit what might be happening is two things one could be the the psychological thing maybe there's something that happens to you where you go oh my gosh i'm in an energy deficit i can't move i'm so tired you know you hear people after two weeks on the on you know on the challenge if they're they're dropping their calories going oh i'm so tired and it's actually it takes a little bit longer than that for people to really feel it you can go for quite some time without feeling it too much depending on how much weight you've got to lose and your activity and stuff so there could be a chance that you are decreasing your activity there could also be a chance i hate this and i hate it when people tell people this but just i have to there could be a chance that you you're not calculating things accurately so there's that as well um there's just so many different things to unpack but like without just say okay you're you're calculating everything correctly and you go into an energy deficit and every single time it's not working, how long are you doing it for as well? How long um, have you changed your foods? Have, are you consistent with your foods? Oh, my gosh, so many questions. So lots of questions there. Do you want me to stop? Yes. <laughs> no, no, no. I think you really nailed it where this is a little snapshot and it might be um, focusing on the wrong areas. Kind of like if you are maybe in your backyard and you're, you're, it's, it's now dark and you have like a, a torch or a flashlight. You know, if you're shining that flashlight around, you're only focusing on the things that are important in the flashlight where we had the whole backyard to look at. Mm. And I think with this individual, maybe some of the points that they highlighted might be the flashlight when we could start to look at, well, what's, what's going on in the backyard? Yeah. Mm. So firstly, you know, really looking at the language, Every time I go into a deficit, I don't lose weight. Now, a deficit is defined as weight loss. So you mm. can't confidently say I'm in a deficit if you're not losing weight. Same as mm. if I'm in a surplus, you can't say I'm in a surplus if you're not losing weight because you're just arbitrarily guessing your energy in versus your energy out. So that's the mm. two, two numbers we need to look at where we are trying to quantify energy in, measuring it with calories and measuring it by how we weigh our food and put our food together so there's a high chance that that is firstly incorrect yeah where even dietitians get that wrong uh that's the first one and even when this individual says that when i'm on higher calories 1800 to 2100 that's a massive range so if you're viewing it as ranges of calories like 300 calories that could be the difference between a deficit maintenance and a surplus in that 300 Mm. calorie window so that's that's kind of the first idea the other number that we need to quantify is the energy expenditure and it's really difficult to measure that energy expenditure because we need to encompass things like the metabolism um, and how it, it works in all its complexities when you consider energy expenditure in the sense of step count energy expenditure compared to the the foods that we eat the thermic effect of those foods and our performance in the gym so all these factors make up how much energy we spend so when we're trying to guess a number of energy expenditure and we're trying to guess the number of energy intake, we can't confidently say that I'm in a deficit or in a surplus unless we measure something, which is our body weight changes. Now, body weight changes, yes, have its fluctuations, and we could do that by drinking some water or going to the toilet or having some gut residue in our belly. But if we were to measure our body weight frequently, you know, every single day, and then measure the average, we can then get a better understanding of my weekly average from week one is X, my weekly average from week two is Y, the difference between that is you know, Z. 
that is the way that we can determine if we're in an energy surplus or an energy deficit. So that's the first thing is to kind of like really unpacking all of this. Now, the rationale of this person gave was the only time I do lose weight is when I'm on higher calories, which is interesting because when we're on high calories, psychologically and, and metabolically, we have more quote energy. Um, so we are more likely to want to go and, you know, clean the backyard and, and do the gardening and, and go to the gym and maybe walk down to the shops and, and, and do more physical activity. So we might also increase our energy expenditure. So sometimes a strategy for weight loss would be to, you know, keep our energy intake at a solid number, you know, what we would deem as quote higher calories, however we define that, so that we get the energy to go and expend that. Because when we reduce our energy intake, we might also reduce our energy expenditure to a point where we're no longer in a deficit. And that's where we get this really negative uh, dieting cycle where we're on this vicious, vicious trend and we're constantly trying to decrease our energy intake and starve ourselves and diet and go through these really crazy strategies, to try to lose weight. And we don't achieve that because we don't focus on the energy expenditure. So I think lots to unpack. The main thing we wanna take away is that energy deficits work um I, I would put that on a billboard for the world to see you know with that question of what would you put on a billboard um for everyone to see that's what i'd say energy deficits work for weight loss there's a few other like follow-on things like maybe comma or what, what's the what's the comma with the dot on the top what's that called nick you you've got your, your writing degree oh my gosh not that is it ampersand no uh, that's the two dots no that's the end the um, dot and the comma. Oh my God, semicolon. Semicolon, yeah. So yeah. that'll be the semicolon. Like any deficits yeah. work, semicolon, because it's kind semicolon. of like changing the sub. That, that's what it means when you use the semicolon. It changes the subject mm -hmm. slightly, but it's still pertinent to the idea. Mm -hmm. So, you know, semicolon. Um, but there's a few other things to consider, such as overall strategy. That's what I'll Yes. Say. And I'll just say one more thing. Just because you want a certain amount of calories to be a deficit or a surplus, doesn't mean it is. And we've been a bit sucked in by influencers and other people saying that they can eat this and they can eat that and and it's all for Instagram or mm -hmm. whatever, you know, TikTok or whatever it is. So just be mindful of that as well. Yeah, mm. no, absolutely. And I think your calorie intake, it, it, it should be results-driven, um, not um, like process-driven. And what that means is that your calorie number shouldn't be static and it shouldn't be something that is like a, a magic number. So let's say you say, oh, I need to have 1600 calories because that's what's going to lose weight. And that's not true. Mm. What it should be when you're dieting is you start with a prediction or a number and you don't need to think about this too much. Literally go onto any website and uh, or, or Google um, uh, calorie calculator, use the first one and that's your starting point, right? Don't think about it too much. Then once you're consuming that number, let's say 2,000 or 1,800 or 3,000, whatever the number is, track your body weight. If you're losing weight, great, keep going. Keep everything the same, happy days. If you're not losing weight, then decrease that calorie intake slightly, maybe by 100 calories, and then decrease it slightly again until you're in a position where you're losing weight. And that's how you can strategically do it. And it seems simple, but the hard part is actually doing the damn thing, yeah? Uh, the hard part is every day being meticulous and trying to track your food intake and trying to track your energy expenditure and try to keep every day similar because we're all human and we all have lives where we have stresses and priorities and things going on where it's the same conversation of of well if you did you know five minutes of trying to learn how to speak spanish in a year you'd be able to speak spanish why don't we do it 
because it takes effort and it's hard. And I respect that. Um, but it's what's necessary if you want to strategically lose weight. If you want to do it, you, you need to track these things. Um, and we need to be uh, meticulous on it. And we're not just throwing stuff at the wall and hoping it sticks. Yeah. And if you, you can't really choose your, what happens. You have to just go with what, what works. Mm-hmm. You know, you can't have an opinion on it. You yep. just got to get on with it. <laughs> now, Nick, talking about things that work, um, I want to speak a little bit about a particular diet um, that was brought up in conversation this past week um, mm-hmm. and arguably one of the most researched diets out there um, and one of the most popular diets to be prescribed by dietitians. Mm-hmm. And that diet is the Mediterranean diet. So yes. surprise, surprise, it's not uh, the keto diet or the vegan diet or vegetarian or carnivore or whatever it is. It's Mediterranean diet. Now, Nick, you might be quite familiar with the Mediterranean diet, given your heritage. Am I right? True. Um, when I was younger, we did not have a limit on olive oil or Parmesan cheese. The limit did not exist. <laughs> but that said, it was always um, it was always sort of you know fresh produce, um, a focus on um, lean proteins, fruits, veggies, um, even so, even Italian breads and things. Everything's just so. Su- it's so superior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just it's just elite, and I, I guess because it's so flavoursome, you don't need to have um, too much other crap with it all. And they mm-hmm. they eat they eat seasonally, and and um, they enjoy their food, and they sit down, and then they have a nap. So there's so many variables. But yes, mm-hmm. I am familiar. Yeah, uh, you know, talking about the Mediterranean diet, the first thing that we need to appreciate is that one, there's no real special specialness of the Mediterranean diet when it comes to weight loss. Okay. It still Mm. abides by the law of thermodynamics, which is that you need to be in energy deficit to lose weight. So Mm -hmm. Mediterranean diet is a great way to foster all the behaviors that help us to consume less calories or fewer calories. Okay. Now it becomes really popular, the Mediterranean diet because of its health benefits. Okay. And we don't often talk about food, uh, you know, to improve our health. We're often talking about food for body composition changes. That's what we talk about a lot in this this podcast. Mm. If you want to learn more about food for health, go check out the Nourish to Flourish course on the Rise Method membership area. And we talk a little bit about the Mediterranean diet in that course. Now, if you're not sure what the Mediterranean diet is, this is a bit of a, a speed run through the main principles of the diet. So firstly, it's a very high consumption of fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and legumes. Okay. Legumes being, you know, beans, kidney beans, lentils, that, that type of stuff. Yeah. All the beans. All the beans. Now, all uh, of them. This is a little bit of a, you know, comma, like, no shit. Like, these are principles that are great for any diet. You know, lots of fruits, lots of vegetables, lots of whole grains, lots of legumes. And if you look at the Australian dietary guidelines, you know, this is one of the main principles where we're trying to have a variety of our food groups. Yeah, that's 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 one. And um, going through this list, there's no particular order in what constitutes a Mediterranean diet. That's one, is a high consumption of, of fresh fruits, fresh, fresh vegetables, whole grains, legumes. And it doesn't take a nutritionist or a dietitian to go, well, yeah, you're probably gonna feel great if you had lots of fruits and vegetables in your life, right? Mm. Next is that they use olive oil as a primary fat source. 
Okay, and you know, we can go a little bit into its uh, high amounts of monounsaturated fats, uh, omega-3, which is good for heart health and such, um, but we're using olive oil as our primary fat source. And if we look at common, uh, you know, Western approaches to dieting, you know, our common fat source could be something like, uh, you know, dairy or butter um, or, you know, uh, refined oils, which isn't great. So, you know, by prioritizing olive oil as our source of, of fat intake, that's really great for the diet. Next, we have um, you know a moderate consumption of fish and poultry. So especially in the Mediterranean, we're talking about you know Italian cuisine, um, Croatian cuisine, even North Africa like like Egypt and and such, where there's probably lots of fish meals and lots of poultry meals in the diet. So um, that's a really great again source of things like omega three fatty acids, great for heart health. Uh, so. In contrast, there is a little bit fewer consumption of red meats. So you probably find in most Italian dishes and even dishes across the Mediterranean, a lot less, um, you know, steaky meals. Yes, there's still steaks. Yes, there's still red meat, uh, but that's not the most common types of meals you will see across that cuisine. Um, lots of fish and, and poultry dishes. Yeah. Mm. Now, in terms of limiting factors, they would limit things like dairy. Um, so there is, yes, you, you could argue that there are, let's say, Italian dishes that would have dairies and, and cheeses in it, but the Mediterranean diet is often associated with um, uh, fewer dairy products in the diet, as well as fewer sweets in the diet as well. So, you know, like candies and lollies, which is a little bit of a, like a, well, yeah, that, that, that kind of makes sense, less candies and lollies. Um, and a little bit less dairy. Okay, that's just part of the diet. Yeah. Now, dairy can be high in calories. So, if you're following a Mediterranean diet and you're having you're you're reducing your dairy intake, that could be a really easy way to reduce your calorie intake. Yeah. Hmm. Next fun one is that the Mediterranean diet actually promotes the mod, uh, moderate consumption of wine. <laughs> of wine, Nick, uh, which is amazing. So uh, predominantly red wine with meals and used in moderation, of course. So we're not drinking the entire bottle, but you often find in Italian cuisines or Mediterranean cuisines that there is wine often at the table as well. So it's a really cool diet for folks who like to have a drink um, without, you know, using alcohol to numb the pain. <laughs> not a great idea. But if you want to follow a Mediterranean diet, hey, you could have wine as part of that diet. Of course, understanding that wine can be high in calories, you know, 100, 150 calories per glass, and that could be enough to tip you out of an energy deficit. Yeah. The, fi the final thing right. to consider, Nick, is what you said at the start where uh, the lifestyle of the Mediterranean is encompassed in the diet where we're doing regular physical activity, uh, walking culture is really big in the Mediterranean. So fewer cars, more walking, uh, more socializing and sharing meals with people. So that goes a long way. And if we are sharing meals and talking to people, we're more um, mindful when we're eating and less likely to overconsume. So all these behaviors, as well as the diet encompassed around the Mediterranean diet, really great for our health and can be a really easy way to streamline our weight loss goals. Yeah, definitely. Um, Roberto, my dad, um, is always um, having like a little cheeky wine with his dinner and things. And yeah, no, he he's um, he's right on to all of that. He loves a bit of that. 
Love that. Never goes without his olive oil. I'll tell you a quick story about olive oil, just really quickly. When he came out to Australia, it was in about 19, or would have been in the the 70s, and they didn't have olive oil in supermarkets yet. So he used to have to get it from the chemist. Yeah, wow. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's a fun fact. Yeah, okay. Mm. Amazing. And then so he would get it from the chemist and put it on his bread and salad and stuff. Um, It was for your ears or something at that time. Yeah, wow. Australia. Mm. Okay, interesting. And then now it's just a—it's as common as anything, right? Amazing. Yeah. So that's his, one of his favorite stories. I think I've heard it four hundred times, but <laughs> I'll have to tell him that I used it on the podcast. Oh, Roberto. <laughs> yep. Mm-hmm. Now, Nick, uh, to pivot the conversation slightly, there was another question around energy drinks. Mm-hmm. mainly referring to things like, you know, Red Bull, V, Monster, Mother, those types of canned carbonated energy drinks. Um, and mm. the question was around, you know, are they bad? And this individual wanted to cut down on their energy drink consumption. So I thought we can talk a little bit about it. Now, Nick, do you drink energy drinks? Do you remember? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I do. I drink yeah. energy drinks. I would quite happily be sponsored by monster (laughs) (laughs) yeah i i do um and yeah i i i cannot lie i have a have a good i love a good monster um yeah yeah energy drinks i'm the same i drink uh i do like a can of monster um the the white monster sugar-free yeah me too thoroughly enjoy it um, right now on sale at Coles, so that's been mm-hmm. that's been handy. And the main takeaway is that when we look at the the energy drinks from an outsider, we go, "Oh, they're bad," and that might be because of the types of folks who might choose to have an energy drink, um, or a misunderstanding of what they actually are, and an idea of, "Oh, they're bad because they have chemicals in them. They're bad because it's just junk. It's bad because it's." it's bad. Um, maybe it's bad because it has caffeine in it or whatever. It's some mm. reason why it's quote bad. Um, and I thought it'd be a good time to bring it up to talk about, you know, why, why is it quote bad? What makes it bad? Okay. Now, Nick, the international society of sports nutrition, ISSN came out with a position stand on energy drinks and they deemed them as a really powerful way to improve sports performance. So you often find mm-hmm. folks like yourself, myself, um, using things like energy drinks to increase our performance. One trip to any sort of strength sport, powerlifting, weightlifting, um, strong man, strong woman, you'll see cans of energy drink everywhere. Uh, any trip to a sports event, cans of energy drink everywhere. Any trip to track and field, energy, tra- energy cans everywhere. So there's uh, it's being used by athletes to improve performance and there's nothing wrong with energy drinks. Now, the argument of it has chemicals or it's bad, so it's something bad in it, uh, often comes from a, um, a, a space of just not understanding, maybe a little bit of ignorance, but that's a, a strong word, where they might not know what's in it, they don't know the words, not understand the words, and most of the words that are on the label are things you find in coffee things you find in teas, thing you, things you find in pre-workouts, and there's no, you know, demon label on pre, pre-workouts, but energy drinks somehow get a, a demon label on it. Now, of mm. course, the dose makes the poison, especially when it comes to caffeine, um, and we can have a similar conversation around coffee as energy drinks and try and understand how much caffeine we're consuming per day. 
if your caffeine intake is so high that it's affecting your sleep, okay, that uh, you're having too much caffeine. And that could be the same as if you're having coffee or having lots of teas um, or drinking lots of like diet soda that has caffeine or eating lots of seeds and nuts that has caffeine in it as well. Uh, so it's the same as energy drinks. So if you're just kicking back, you know, 10 cans of Monster at 10 p.m. at night, you might face some problems long-term when you're trying to sleep, yeah? But I want to come out and say there's nothing wrong with having an energy drink. If you do, it'd be very clever to have a um, no-sugar version of it, you know, having a drink that is highly sugar, sugared? Lots of sugar in it? <laughs> probably not a great idea. It's probably lots of calories in that, which you don't really want to consume if you are wanting body composition goals. Yeah, and if anyone knows where I can get the sugar-free peach monster, let me know because that's that's out and I haven't been able to find it. But yeah, I I love monsties. Yeah, yeah. But um, also, C four is nice in a can too. I'm just, mm-hmm. I'm look, I'm not affiliated with anything, but uh, but yeah, good old caffeine's fantastic. But look, we don't always have heaps and heaps of options apart from water and things. You know, sometimes it's good to just add some interest to the day. Yeah. Well, Pretty things exciting. like. Things like Monster has, of course, caffeine in it. Um, other stimulants like uh, taurine, grana, um, some green tea extracts, that type of stuff. Uh, and then mm-hmm. also has some cellular hydrating um, agents. So I think taurine helps the cells to hydrate. Also has a little bit of electrolytes, sodium in the energy drinks. So of course, helping hydration. And then also a vitamin um, complex, usually vitamin Bs, again, to help with energy. So these are all some really great things. And if that was powdered in a pre-workout, geez, that would be a really good pre-workout. So energy mm-hmm. drinks, nothing wrong with them. Sometimes they're more cost-effective than pre-workouts. You know, if you buy bulk of cans of mother um, and, you know, maybe less than two bucks a serve, that might be cheaper than your pre-workout. So uh, nothing wrong with them. Of course, the dose is the poison. So don't go wild. Yes. So good. Look, Nick, um, I just want to wrap it up here and talk a little bit about the RISE method challenge at the moment. So we are in week Mm. seven, exciting times like always. And we're coming to the tail end of the very first RISE method challenge. This week is really exciting. We've got some fun things installed for you. Firstly, we are launching the new and improved Kickstart Challenge. So it's a 14-day free challenge that you could sign up for on the Rise Method website. Each day you get an email from myself with a nutrition challenge for the day and a workout of the day, plus a little bit of a motivational message. So if you're listening to this, unsure where to start, you can jump onto the Kickstart Challenge 14-day free challenge access um, via email and you can join on the Rise Method website. So that's the first thing. Second thing, we are launching a new recipe book with over 50 recipes in that booklet, predominantly for weight loss. So that will be launched this week. It's gonna be really cool. Um, and you know, we've been working behind the scenes on upgrading the website, getting ready for the next round of the Rise Method. So that's gonna be kicking off on the 4th of September. And it's going to be a six-week round, um, and it's going to be really cool where we're going to introduce maybe a different prize at the end, maybe a most inspirational transformation um, where they're going to win a cash prize, and it's going to be solely based on two criteria. One path would be to complete the weekly check-ins and telling us uh, what you're up to in the weekly check-ins. you also get an email from myself if you complete the weekly check-in. 
or you can share your story on social media using a, a hashtag, which we haven't defined yet, uh, but you can share your story online and uh, we are gonna celebrate one individual as the most inspirational transformation. And we're also gonna have 10 other individuals that walk away with a prize. So really exciting times in the RISE method as we move on to the next round of the program. Crazy times. Crazy times, exciting. like always. Now, mm -hmm. I do want to finish up by celebrating the week six all-stars. Most of these week six all-stars um, have been completing the weekly check-ins and I love reading the weekly check-ins uh, and I get lots of content from the weekly check-ins and also just a, a great understanding of what your challenges are. So once I can understand what challenges you, you're facing, we can create content and programs to help so solve those problems. So first up, we have Matt Wells, who's uh, completed uh, almost every weekly check-in. Um, his partner, Rebecca, I think was the an all-star last week. So, uh, you know, power couple smashing it through, getting the results. I love that. Mm. Next, we have Courtney Reading. Courtney was the very first person to sign up for the Rise method. Uh, she did it while we were announcing it the very first time, Nick, on the on the live stream. Uh, so she jumped on straight away and signed up. So congratulations to her. But she's not an all-star because she was the first to sign up. She's been really active on the um, social hub in the members area, uh, posting a lot about her journey, some food, and also inst on Instagram as well. So congratulations to Courtney. Well done. Next, we have Tammy. Tammy's been all over the place. So she's been on Instagram, she's been on the social hub, she's been on Facebook and sharing her story um, and really just kicking goals. So congratulations to Tammy. Go, Tammy. Next, we have Donna Ulgenreis, if I said that right. And Donna has been sharing her story on the forum um, and she's been having some challenges with her transformation, her mindset and working on that to continuously improve herself. So congratulations to Donna. And finally, we have Anne-Marie. She's been quite quiet on the social space, but really active on the weekly check-ins. So um, kicking goals, training hard and eating well. So it's not too late for you to be an all-star. So if you're listening to this and you know, you've know you been going through the program, we're now in week seven, you're like, oh, I just, just haven't really gotten into it. That's cool. This week can be your week. So you can just tell us what you're up to, tell us your wins, tell us uh, how you're training, what you're eating. You can tell us in the weekly check-in you could post about it on the forum on the social hub on facebook on instagram anywhere we'll see it we'll find it and you could be the all-star next week get onto it get onto it i love that mm -hmm. look nick let's wrap up there for episode number 10 of the rise method podcast if you love this episode let us know and we'll catch you next week for episode number 11 and i hope you get to see me doing an rdl in my woody <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or Nick, maybe you could post a video of yourself doing an RDL this week, we reckon. Yeah, I could do that. Not in my Udi, but yes, absolutely. Not in the Udi. Yeah, yeah. You can show All us right. uh, the, the hamstring separation that we've got going. Yeah, that means I'd have to. Oh, yeah. All right. All right. Well, that's yeah. hard because you're often training in leggings, right? So you can't see that. Yeah, but look, maybe I'll, I'll have so much hamstring separation, you'll be able to see it through the leggings. Ah, so uh, yeah. Yep, yep. that's, that's, Don't that's, worry about that. That's the goal, Nick, you know, to have such yeah. beefy hamstrings that you could see them through pants. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Or I'll substitute mine for Danae's who just qualified for the Olympia. So, well, there <laughs> you sure go. She... There you go. You can probably All see right. Danae's uh, hamstrings through her leggings when she trains. Oh, um, yeah. You, <laughs> probably see, you could see they, her they glute striations slices. when she trains. Yeah, so. you can. <laughs> okay. I digress. Nick, wrap it up here. Episode number 10. We'll catch you next week, guys. All right. Thanks, everybody. Bye.